Hi everyone, how you doing? Doug Flutie here. This is the Flutie Flakes cast. Uh, really excited this week that Bill Polian on. Bill Polian, general manager from the Buffalo years of Jim Kelly and four straight Super Bowls, as well as the Indianapolis years with Peyton Manning and winning a Super Bowl with, with Indianapolis. There's also a CFL connection with Bill, which is exciting for me to talk about. And I want to get his opinion on a few things around the league, especially those uh, draft day trades, you know, and, and how all that works, what's going on behind the scenes and putting that all together. Uh, first week of the NFL season, fun Thursday night game with Dallas and Tampa Bay. Tom Brady winning the game at the end, but Dak Prescott looked great. Uh, he's healthy. He's, he moved the ball up and down the field. If it weren't for some missed field goals, he probably would have won the game. So very happy for him to get back on the field and be full tilt. Uh, looking around the league, though, first of all, in New York with the Jets, Zach Wilson got on the field, played well as the game went, got better, I thought. But the real winner there is Sam Darnold moving to Carolina and having a great game and, and in a situation where I think he can win. Uh, Lamar Jackson on Monday Night Football. Um, you know, the, the Raiders pull it out. They win it in overtime. There was a bunch of stuff there I'd like to talk about. But the number one thing is that Lamar Jackson's running the ball way too much. They're leaning on him so hard. Led both teams in carries and yards and all that. And, and he's an unbelievable athlete. He's going to make these huge plays. But it's going to be hard to stay healthy doing that all year long. He did have two costly fumbles, which, you know, quarterbacks running the ball, we're used to running the ball when things are wide open. When you have a crease and can go and you look good in the open field, get down, protect yourself a little bit. He's, he's, he's taken way, way, way too many hits. They went into that overtime and the Raiders got the ball down the one yard line. And they have a procedure call back up outside the five. They still want to be aggressive and score the touchdown. So they are throwing the football, get a tip, ends up intercepted. I, my pet peeve about being on the goal line. Never change up your snap count going in. When you're down in there tight going in, the risk reward of a snap. If you get a penalty on the defensive line for jumping offside, it's a half a foot. If you get a penalty, you're backing up outside the five-yard line and you're possibly throwing the ball again and, and doing whatever it takes to get the ball in the end zone. When you're backed up in your own end against your own goal line, now you change up your cadence and you try to draw them offside to get some breathing room off, the, off of your own goal line. However, that being said, the opposite when you're backed up, I hate the half the distance to the goal line stuff. If you can get a 10-yard penalty, you're at the 11 and you got a 10-yard penalty, it should back you up to the one. I, I, you can't, if there's enough room to mark off the penalty, you should always mark off the penalty. And that's been a rule that's bugged me for years and years and years. Um, Ryan Fitzpatrick, veteran guy. I love Ryan. And uh, he got in, he got banged up. And Heineke comes off the bench. This guy shows some savvy. I mean, he played last year, came out, had a 300-yard game when he had to fill in against Tampa Bay. Elusive, out of the pocket, thrown on the run, blah, blah, blah. So he, I, I, they're in good hands with him. Um, Kyler Murray, great game, five touchdowns, just looking like the athlete that he is all over the field. Mac Jones in New England, I thought played exceptionally well. He looked like a veteran quarterback in the pocket, throwing the ball on time, on rhythm. The only problem is he's a little bit too disciplined, and they didn't make plays down the field at all. It was all short passing. You know, sometimes you're going to have to move people with your eyes and maybe force it a little bit to get up the field because it's very difficult in the NFL to put 15 plays together, go 80 yards, work off 8 to 10 minutes on the clock, and finally finish it off with a touchdown. They ended up settling for some field goals. 
couple of costly fumbles after the catch, which, which cost him. But boy, Mac Jones looked good and efficient. It looked like a Tom Brady type guy running the offense. All right. My number one concern was Justin Fields and Andy Dalton with the bears. I understand. And I, I am all about putting the veteran guy on the field and winning the game. Who gives you the best, whoever gives you the best chance to win should be the guy on the field. And that is the way I feel for that day. These guys that talk about the future, talk about, we got to get this guy ready to play. Tell that to the guys that are veterans on that team that maybe don't have another year. This is the year. This is the week. We do whatever it takes to win this week. Uh, the bears went into that game knowing they would mix it up a little bit that uh, they will get Justin Fields on the field, make him play. And he's a phenomenal athlete. He makes plays. But I think it's extremely unfair to put Andy Dalton out there, drive the ball down the field, get into the red zone, and then, oh, Justin, get in there. And he runs one in for a touchdown. He completes a short pass, but then he has a a procedure call and backs up. I think it's completely unfair because now Andy Dalton goes back in and he's lost it down. Give me all three downs to try to stick this ball in the end zone. Don't go trying to make your young guy look like a superstar by giving him the touchdowns and sticking it in the end zone. Let's let's do what it takes to get the ball in. Your best red zone offense, yeah, you can change it up. I mean, a lot of people, you know, the athletic quarterback gives you a lot of options in the red zone. But to me, your quarterback is your quarterback. What do you do best with Andy Dalton down the red zone? Run it. Justin Fields, phenomenal athlete. He will become the starter. The clock's ticking. There's no doubt. But if he were better than Andy Dalton, he should be starting right now. If their opportunities to move the football are better with Justin Fields on the field, he should be playing right now. Put him out there. Otherwise, put Andy Dalton out there. Don't divide the locker room. Don't have guys looking over their shoulders, looking to the sideline, wondering who's coming in and who's going out. Plus, that as a quarterback, I hate it. I had a situation in Calgary up in Canada where the backup quarterback was from Nebraska, Steve Taylor. Really good runner, strong legs. I'm an elusive runner. He's a strong runner. So they put him in on quarterback sneaks. It ticked me off because I still did stuff off quarterback sneaks where I might throw the ball. If they're, if they're packing the box, I'll throw out there and throw a wide receiver screen. I'll check out of it. I'll throw a post for a split zero. And I actually had a couple of quarterback sneaks where I split the middle and went 50 yards for a touchdown because they got tired of me throwing the ball on the outside. They'd cover down to go blitz zero. I hit a crease and go. Um, and coaches have a tendency, I think, to overthink these things. Run your offense, get down in the red zone. There's so much more pressure today to get the young guy on the field. In our day or in my day, uh, you took your time, wait, the veteran guy played. When you get the opportunity, you got on the field, you took a few years to learn. The difference in the game today is all the time that is spent during the offseason, that there's no excuse for a rookie to come in and not be caught up uh, with the game plans, with the offense, you know, reads, progressions. Now you get more and more comfortable as the years go by, but there's so much more time spent during the offseason now that these young guys have a shot at getting on the field right away and playing right away and being good. I, I do believe that Justin Fields will be the starting quarterback real, real soon, that he will take over. Um, he brings so much to the table. And I've said this about him. I thought he was a very inconsistent college quarterback as far as accuracy. Towards the end of last year, um, he showed his toughness coming off of an injury, coming back in the game, making plays, throwing the ball. He had a couple of rough play, uh, starts or uh, games against Big Ten opponents, but I gained a lot of respect for Justin Fields last year. And he's looked great in the, in the preseason. 
he does a lot of the simple things. Um, they're protecting him. See, that's part of it is I think they're protecting Justin Fields in their play calling, not putting him in a position where he has to check all the protections and know all the hots and, and get the ball out of his hand. A lot of it is RPO type stuff or quarterback movement, you know, bootleg, get on the corner, quarterback runs. And that's easy to catch up, easy to get up to speed on that type of offense and moving the football. As an afterthought, uh, just talking about off, I started talking a little bit about off season there, and uh, it makes me just gravitate briefly here to Aaron Rodgers and all the turmoil during the off season. I don't want to be here stuff and trying to get out of Green Bay, and um, they looked like it. They really did. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is Aaron Rodgers. By as this season goes, he's he's going to be a Pro Bowl um, caliber quarterback with that offense and moving the football and everything else but the team chemistry gets disrupted when your veteran quarterback is not there day in and day out and especially if he sounds not happy with the organization and wants to move on and doing jeopardy and everything else I don't want to get on the soapbox too bad with Aaron Rodgers because these guys are veteran guys that'll be a hall of famer and he's phenomenal but it showed it showed in the game and uh, they struggled it's going to take them a few weeks going to take them a little while to to hit their stride Remember, you can get the Flutie Flakes cast on Apple, Pandora, and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to rate and review. Coming up, my guest is uh, Bill Polian, Hall of Fame NFL executive and NFL radio host. Well, I want to welcome aboard Bill Polian. A Hall of Fame NFL executive, uh, NFL radio host, Sirius XM. So thanks for joining me, Bill, and being a part of this. Glad to do it, Doug, anytime. You know, I, I'm reading through, trying to you know brush up a little bit, and everyone knows about the Buffalo days and and the uh, Indianapolis days and all that. And I'm looking, through. you started out in the CFL. I did. I love I that. Did. I love anything to do with the CFL. Anybody that had anything to do with the CFL, I love it. How how did you get that connection in the oh, beginning? Gee, it's a, it's it's the all time fairy story. I, I was out of football. I'd been coaching at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Columbia as a college coach. We got fired at at the Merchant Marine Academy, and uh, and I went into business. I was in the advertising business, and my college coach at New York University when they when they had a Division three program called me and he said, I've just gone to Montreal as the personnel director. And he said, you need to be in football and you need to be in personnel. So I'm going to give you 500 bucks for the season and your expenses. And you cover all of the, in the CFL, for people that don't understand it, you get your players from the NFL. They don't come directly from college unless they're Canadian. So I did all of the NFL teams up and down the Eastern seaboard from Atlanta really to Boston. I, and, I, and I loved it. I, I, I was just in hog heaven. So we got in the playoffs and he called me and he said, coach would, would like to see you. I'm going to fly you up this weekend. You need me to meet with him. I said, okay, fine. So I went up there and, and I met with the coach and he said, you know, I've been reading your reports and they're really excellent. And he said, you really have a talent for this and I want you with this organization. So we're going to expand your role. And I was thrilled, obviously. The coach's name was Marv Levy. And now you know the rest of the story, <laughs> as Paul Harvey used to say. 
Yeah, they they're very fond of Marv up there and take a lot of pride in the fact that Marv did the things afterwards that he did and and that he started, you know, he was in the CFL. Anyone that had any success in the NFL that was in the CFL, they take credit for up there. They wanted to, you know, up your role, so they went from $500 to 550. <laughs> they gave you a raise, right? A That's, little more than uh, that, but you're right. They, they do that. I've, I've seen guys leave my team and go to another team over $2,000 contract. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was making 35 here. Now I'm making 37. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, well, it's a, a low budget operation. It, Give me an example of low bu- budget operation oh, in Canada. Oh, well, when I was, when I I love was it. in Winnipeg as the personnel director, Cal Murphy, Cal Murphy, who was the offensive line coach with the Alouettes. That's that's where we first met and became lifelong friends. God rest his soul. We'd been fired in Kansas City. Marvin brought me to Kansas City with him. Cal came to uh, Winnipeg and he and he said to me, uh, you know, I I need you as the personnel director. And and the money was like a twenty thousand dollar cut over what I've been making. And and that was in U.S. funds, I didn't even know what the exchange rate was at that point. So, and you can imagine moving from, I was based in, in Cornwall, New York for the Chiefs because I was covering half the country really and, and being an advanced scout. So we're moving from there to Winnipeg, you know, my God, 500 miles north of Minneapolis. <laughs> oh, I, right. Minneapolis. Every time I go to Minneapolis, is like minus four, minus eight. And you're talking 500 miles north of there. I've, I've played a game in Winnipeg with 70 mile an hour wind gust and fit, st- steady 35 to 50 mile an hour. It's like hurricane winds. Ridiculous. You know, obviously you've gone through the ropes and all that. And, well, and the USFL, the, the USFL with the Chicago Blitz. You were with yes, the Blitz. And we drafted you. We, we had your rights. <laughs> well, how, how, how did Trump get me over I Jersey? I just say, I don't know. Chet Simmons, the commissioner, just said, well, they have him. They're going to sign him. <laughs> I, I didn't know that I, I never knew that okay yeah well the, the league still exists on paper <laughs> it never completely folded up so and actually the league's coming back so now you go back after him for something oh that's a i did not know that chicago blitz see the people that were in that league some of the names of coaches oh the, sure the players Carl peterson jim moore i mean you know and myself mark levy john butler just to name a few i mean there was there were guys in every franchise who who went on to become big successes in the NFL. Yeah. Jim Moore would shut me down. I had some good games. I had, it was very mediocre at that time. I was just coming out and inconsistent and Jim Moore would just shut me down. He was with Baltimore and just shut me down. I, I talked a lot about uh, Justin Fields situation, Andy Dalton, you know, them bouncing back and forth and how that's as a GM, as a guy that makes that commitment to, we need this guy. Number one, this is our guy. What are your feelings about getting your guy on the field? And is your heart in your throat when that's happening, that your your reputation and, and job type of thing is on the line? Well, before I say that, let me just share an aside with you. Personnel people are always looking for comparisons. So in a personnel meeting, someone will say, who's Justin Fields? And now you think and you say, well, who's Justin Fields remind me of? So a couple of weeks ago, Someone said to me, who is Kyler Murray? And I said immediately, almost stream of consciousness, Doug Flutie. And the guy said, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. So for people who don't remember you as a player. Yeah, uh, thank you. That was very that's, that's who Kyler Murray uh, is. And when I saw him play on Sunday, I said, whoops, 
okay, I got it. The other thing is hearing Russ talk with, with uh, both Mannings on the broadcast, the moon ball that Russ, Russ, that, that Russ throws and, and Murray throws, it, that's your pass to Phelan. That's the original yeah, moon ball. <laughs> right? I, I amaze. I amaze at their accuracy doing that. I always threw an outside fade route to a receiver one-on-one when I thought the separation was going to happen and try to get the ball there as the separation happened. So sometimes it was a line drive and it wasn't always just a back shoulder, but it was a line drive. But once you got to a certain point up the field, now it becomes that moon ball. Now it becomes a high arcing throw up over the top and you got to drop it in. And the accuracy has, it has to be pinpoint accurate and, and that feel of buying the space between the receiver and the sideline. And I just marvel, especially Russell Wilson, at how well he does that. Rookie quarterbacks coming out, their ability to throw the ball uh, is so far advanced from previous generations that it's incredible. You know, it really is. It, they can make throws, and they start in the, in the fifth grade. So, you know, with, with seven on seven and things like that. So they're so far advanced that w- when they get to the NFL that they can make throws that no one ever thought of before. It's amazing. It was a big deal that – in college, we would audible. We would we would go from run the pass, pass to run whatever. And these guys have been doing this since grade school. Where are they, especially the, the spread offense guys? Where are they as far as the mental preparation come into the NFL as opposed to before? Like like an RG three was in an offense where he's throwing wide receiver screens all day and then throws a bomb, so it wasn't really a reading the, the field coverage type of thing. Where where are these guys compared to a generation before? Well, they're they're pretty far advanced. And a lot of that credit go, uh, for that goes to Peyton because he, Phil Sims said to me, he changed how quarterback was played, not only at the NFL level, but every level below that, all the way down to the Pop Warner level. They now are expected to, to call plays at the line of scrimmage and, and be able to operate the offense without the, the guy in, in, in their ear. Uh, and so they're much farther advanced. Now, the spread guys are an interesting thing because – As you know, in pure spread, they're just looking for daylight. They're throwing to daylight, and that's what the receivers are running to is daylight. You know, uh, against man, you're going to run a deep crosser, and that's your first read. And and if you don't get it, then there's a guy hanging on the sideline in in open space, and you just throw it to him or run, depending on what your talent level is. So they understand the idea of spacing versus zones, but – what they don't ever get at the collegiate level are a disguises pre-snap disguises on the snap and combination coverages. They don't see any of that. And that's where if you watch the tape or even watch the games on Sunday, you, you can see, oops, he never saw that coverage before. <laughs> you know, They throw it away or it's intercepted or, you know, they, they just, they're not used to seeing those kinds of coverages. That's, Point one and point two is the windows close so quickly in the NFL. You know, in college, you have a you have a big window, and guys with long releases, you know, big long releases can can be good at the college level because the windows don't close in the NFL. They just close like that in zones. It's amazing, that, and you can tell. You watch film. You 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 watch mechanics of quarterbacks, mechanics of how they're players are doing I say I was a guy that give me the ball I'll throw it to him and I'll get it there I help coach some high school kids or some younger kids in this but I feel like I was a guy that every play was new to me every throw was new to me and 
It might be this arm angle, that arm angle. And I don't feel like I could coach it well. I can say, this is how I did it. But, you know, that I, I miss that aspect of it. And because, you know, as an analyst, I've done games, college football games, and I watch guys and I've got to go to the D-line coach and say, hey, what's this guy do well and what doesn't he do well before I actually go to the film so I can find it sometimes. How do you develop that, that talent of seeing, what do you look for in certain positions? Well, seeing it, I, I think to a large degree is God given, just like it is with quarterbacks. You've got the ability to see the picture and then within the picture, you can see it individually. I started out in the NFL as an advanced scout. So, and, and in those days, of course, there wasn't the big board or any of that stuff. So what you, what you saw with your eyes was basically what you got until you broke the film down the next day. And I, was, I had an ability to see the play and the formation and then say, okay, because this happened, that happened over there. And so, for example, if, if there was a, a trap play and, and I didn't see the pull or pull, but I saw the block take place at the point of attack. I knew automatically it was a trap. And who did it? You know, your brain works that way. And when you do it enough, it becomes second nature. But you have to have the ability to do that in the first place. And I think that's true of quarterbacks. That's what you're looking for is that ability for the quarterback to see a coverage and say, okay, I got it. And the next time I see it, I know exactly what to do, learn and retain and then operate. Peyton was the best I've ever been around at that. He must have had a photographic memory because he, you know, all he needed to do was see something once. And five weeks later, he'd say, you know what, Baltimore used that against us five weeks ago. I, it's just amazing. That's, that's how you do it. But I thought you were phenomenal on the Notre Dame broadcast. As you know, my son's on the staff there. Oh, and, love him. And I thought you were great because you saw the game through a quarterback's eyes, which is you, you've got to look at the big picture. Appreciate that. Yeah. Your son, Brian, special teams coach with uh, uh, Notre Dame. He spent a lot. We spend a lot of time talking, especially five, 10 minutes before the game. You know, if they had a fake, if they had something in the in the game planned. And uh, he actually had the opportunity at Nevada and, and went over. I thought he did a great job and he ends up coming back to Notre Dame. And I'm sure you're very proud of all. He's oh, yeah. Done. Yeah. Very proud. He's a, he's a really good coach and a good guy. And I just it gives me a chance to be nervous on game weekends now, even though I don't have a team. <laughs> I do. How about, how about last week? How about last week coming down to the wire? <laughs> Toledo. They're playing the number eight team in the country playing Toledo and squeaks it out at the end. It was a rough game. There's a lot of work yeah, to was. do there. Cone dislocates his finger, runs to the sideline, gets a pullback yeah. in, comes back in and throws the yeah. touchdown for the win the game. Tell me your, your favorite Peyton Manning story. Well, there's a lot of them. Uh, the, the, the one that, 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 gets the, I think, the most notoriety is, and it's all true, um, Peyton was, um, had come in about seven or eight days before the draft to just have his knee rechecked. He had a knee problem in the offseason and we wanted to recheck it. Came into my office and basically said, uh, you know, are you going to take me number one? And I said, well, I haven't made up my mind yet. You know, in the end, I, I leave everything to the last minute. I make sure no stones unturned. So he was kind of upset about that. And, and I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, I want me to go to New York. And I don't want to go to New York unless I know I'm going to be the number one pick because I went through this with the Heisman Trophy stuff and I don't want to do it again. So I said, okay, I, I get that. From our perspective, Mr. Ursay wants to be in New York when the pick is made. 
and and to welcome the player. So I'll be able to tell you sometime in advance, but you got to assure me if it is you, you don't say a word because we can't rain on the owner's parade. He said, no, I, I get it. So I said, all right, look, the draft is Saturday. I'll call you no later than Thursday morning so that you can either leave for New York or not, depending on how you, how's that? And he said, well, it's, it's not what I'd like, but it's okay. I said, okay, good. He gets up and we shake hands and he's leaving the office. He stops in the, in, in the doorway and turns to me and says, if you draft me, I promise that we'll win a championship, a world championship. And if you don't, I promise I'll come back and kick your ass. <laughs> and I didn't quite know whether he meant me personally or the Colts. <laughs> <laughs> On the field or you personally? How, how about the, this year, right? San Francisco trades up on uh, draft day to get to number three spot, to get their quarterback, their guy, which actually they changed their mind mainstream, like midstream after they make the trade, the, their guy that we were trading for that became another guy. What are those last second deals like on draft day? On The stuff that goes on on draft day, how hectic is that? How crazy can it be? In my experience, it's not very hectic because you, you have a, a, a procedure that you develop and follow, especially top of the first round trades because the groundwork for those are laid either at the pro days in March and more in my experience at the league meetings in late March, where if you were the general manager of the bears, I might go to you and say, listen, you have the fourth pick in the draft. We're 10th. We're interested in coming up. If the right guy is there, um, are you interested in perhaps going down? And if your answer was yes, I would say, okay, um, that's great. Think about a price and I'll do the same and let's talk next week when we get back to the office. You already know when you get back to the office in the first week of April who the real prospects are, who's interested in trading and who's not. And then you begin to mine that, you know, that, that ore and, and, and to see who's really serious, what the price is, is it a price you want to pay? Because when you're going to make that kind of a trade, ultimately it has to go to ownership. You, you, the owner's not going to let you do that on your own. At some point, let's say, if the draft now is on Thursday, the previous Thursday, seven days in advance, you would go to the owner and say, look, we have the, there are two teams here interested in coming down, and we, we're interested in going up um, Flutie. Therefore, uh, you know, here's what they're asking. And, and in most cases, the owner would say, oh, that's too much. You know, or if he looked right away, you got, you have to say yeah, this too much. If, if he likes the player, he might say, okay, good, do it. You know, the, the discussion internally begins and then you set the parameters and, and there the GM basically has most of the say where you could say, no, I, you know, three ones is not, we're not going to do that. That's foolish for the following reasons. And generally the owner will go along. So by the time you are 48 hours from the draft, you're pretty close to knowing who you're going to deal with and at what price. And then the actually because everything has to be sent to the office in writing, the league office in writing, and has to be agree verbatim, including punctuation, you write the trades out in advance so that all of that paperwork is prepared. And then on draft day, you get on the phone maybe an hour or so before the draft and say, you're still interested in doing the deal? Yes. 
Is the price the same as it is? Sometimes it can change because their ownership may have gotten involved or some, you know, other things happen. And then generally speaking, the answer is, okay, good. We, we have the framework of a deal here. If our guy is there when you pick, uh, let's do it. That's basically the way it works. There are no very few surprises. The only surprises come when somebody begins to tumble. Well, Mac Jones went where most people predicted he would go. Bill Belichick did a phenomenal job. He sat right there. He didn't get involved in, in, in any real trade speculation. He sat right there and said, let him come to us. That's the value we put on him. He's as good as there is in determining that. And um, but, but let's say that it was uh, Fields. Okay, Fields begins to tumble a little bit. And, uh, and so now in the draft room, a discussion would uh, occur between the head coach, the general manager, and the owner saying, you want to go up and get Fields? You want to try and go, go up and get Fields? And the owner might say yay or nay. The coach might say yay or nay. Ultimately, you've done all the work. You pretty much know what the answer is going to be. Um, and if the answer is yes, then the GM and the assistant GM get on the phone and start working the teams in front of you to find out what they want. It gets a little bit hectic there. And, and then it gets really hectic down at the bottom of the round because at the bottom of the first round, you may have only one guy that you're interested in. Keep in mind, for, for our listeners' sake, there are not 32 first-round picks on everybody's board. There are 32 first-round picks. Typically, there are only 18 first-round grades. So when you're in, in from 22 or 23 on down, you really have – second round players that you're looking at and you may say, wow, Flutie's, you're a prime example of that. You know, you're coming out of Boston college. You're probably not going to be a top 10 guy because of your height, but somebody says Flutie's still there. We got to go get him. You know, so now you're on the horn with people in front of you saying, you know, what, what, what does it take to go from 24 to 18? That, that, that gets done on the spot. So the Justin Fields situation, when you draft a guy like that and you have him, how much pressure is there to get him on the field from your standpoint? Or do you not want him on the field until he's absolutely ready? And do you feel like your job's on the line when you make these number one picks? Uh, well, to, to a certain extent, the answer is, I mean, your job's always on the line. You, you, you got, as we know, you got to win. You know, I used to tell the rookie players when they came in every year, Everybody in the NFL has a, is their careers are terminal. We don't know. We just don't know when or why. None of us leave on our own, uh, on our own. So, uh, or rare, rare few leave on their own. That part of it's always there. When you draft a guy like that, you have to have a plan in place with him exactly in mind between the coach, the general manager, and with the approval of the owner to say, this is how we're going to bring him along. This is what he needs. This is what we need to do with him. We're not going to play him until we think he's reached the following benchmarks and you establish the benchmarks so everybody internally knows what they are. And then you just stay with that plan. A barring injury, you know, an injury to the starter, you just stay with that plan. And sometimes if he's not ready, you'd elevate the second guy. In the Bears' case, if he's not ready, you know, they got a perfectly good quarterback there who can play if, if, if Andy were to be injured. The plan is in place in advance. The difficulty is that when big-time media outlets decide 
that this is a great story and a great controversy, be it a network, which makes it, I mean, it's really hard to, to stop that ball from rolling if they decide they want it to. In your local market, the newspaper, that's easier to kind of shut them down, but it's still a pain in the neck. And, and they get the fans all riled up. And then if you're not winning, you know, sometimes ownership can waver. You know, there are people talking in the owners here too. And, and, and they don't know what the benchmarks are and they don't see the guy in, in practice. And that makes it really hard. And, and I, I really feel for Coach Nagy. I really do. I mean, he, he's, he's doing the right thing. I said on, on my own serious show last week, I've talked to about a dozen people in the NFL that I really respect. And every one of them said Fields is a great talent and he's going to be good. He'd be well served to sit for a while, if not the whole season, for a good part of it and learn. And, and Coach Nagy's doing the right thing, but I don't, you know, if they don't win, I don't know that, that he can survive it. I hope he does. Yeah, it becomes it becomes hard to hang in there and give the patience to it. Out of this rookie group of quarterbacks, who's going to have the best year out of these guys? And who was most NFL ready stepping in? Uh, Matt Jones. And, and, and that was true. That was true in February. As you know, uh, playing quarterback is not about arm strength. Uh, everybody in the media gets gets nuts about arm strength. You know, wow, he can throw it through a brick wall. Yeah, but there are no brick walls in the NFL. <laughs> there are receivers and defensive backs and uh, he was he was the most ready then, and I think he'll be good now because he's got good people around him. That's not to say that he'll be flawless. He wasn't on Sunday, and, and, and he won't be going forward. And he is limited because he can't drive the ball the way, uh, the way Lawrence can or, or, or the way the kid in New York can. But neither of them are playing with a team that's, that has a lot of talent around it, so that's going to automatically – hurt your, your efficiency. And in both cases, neither have playing with a great offensive line. So I, I think the reverse is true in New England. So he's probably going to have the most success right off the bat. And he was the most ready to play. Yeah, I, I kind of felt that way going into it. And he looked to me very efficient, like getting through progressions, getting the ball out, all right. that stuff. So, so efficient with the ball. And the thing that was missing and the reason they kicked field goals was there were no big plays. There was no big chunk plays to, to make those long touchdown drives. So that's to look forward to from New England. Uh, I appreciate you joining me, Bill. That's it's so much fun for me to, to get the other side. I never like a lot of players know all the inner workings of the stuff that goes on behind it. Like Peyton, even coming to you as a, as a rookie and talking, I kept my mouth shut. I was like, give me the ball. I want to play football. Let's go out in the street. I did. Yeah. I'll, I don't want to deal with the business end of this. Let's just go play. But I appreciate you joining me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Doug. Anytime. I want to thank Bill Poling for joining me. Thank you so much, Bill. And uh, what do we have from Twitter this week, Tom? All right. Uh, and every week, obviously, you can send your questions or comments to at Doug Flutie, as we'll read them on the podcast. Enjoyed some of the responses and questions last week. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Was I believe it was you and Chris Tyler were talking about pizza in the Boston area. So uh, we cover everything here on the Flutie Flakes cast. We're going to start doing pizza reviews? Pizza review. I don't Guys. think we can do that. Some other people have that. So I don't yeah, know somebody else that. is doing that. I love my pizza, though. And I, it's like I've had four different pizzas since I've gotten back into Boston this week. I've been Boston. I'm actually doing the show from Boston this week. And uh, 
I had to hit it's a it's a franchise chain, whatever, but Papa Gino's pizza. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't go wrong with pizza. I mean, it, it's hard to find bad pizza, I guess. Even bad pizza is good. Yes, I agree. And cold, cold pizza. Cold pizza. Yeah. I got in the car last night. I had a baseball game last night. Got a pizza. Had it in the car on the way. Game ends. Get in the car. Eat the last two slices on the way home. You can't go wrong. Uh, nope. You mentioned this earlier in the uh, opening monologue, uh, and this guy actually kind of agrees with you. Aaron Rodgers should have spent more time watching tape and working out what is wide receivers than hosting Jeopardy. Let's see what happens in week two before we overreact. Yeah, I, it's a, it's an overreaction, and I, I mentioned it in my monologue today. But, you know, the team chemistry as a veteran, you feel like, you know, it's not a big deal if I'm there this day or that day, if I, I can skip a few days at camp or I can get through. Yeah, you're fine. Usually you're fine. But there's a team chemistry that gets built with you being around all the time. My best year, I spent practically the whole offseason up in Buffalo. Eric Molds and I were playing pickup basketball together, working out on the field together, back shoulder throws, everything else. And there was just a chemistry that got built over that time. And it was our first year together. And we had a phenomenal year. And that stuff goes on. It's getting to know each other, being accountable to each other, trust. The trust factor comes into play, you know, as well as all the, I mean, specific timing and all that. It's stuff you're going to work on in training camp anyway, but it really gets polished during the offseason. Well, speaking of overreactions, another response uh, this week that you got was, yes, after week one, I realized that my Giants still suck. And the season is over already. Another overreaction. Uh, it's all OK. Already over. Just, uh, you know, pay the guys now. Let them go home then. Yeah. Why not? Right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's done. It's, no, I, I, it's amazing how we all, especially week one. Week one is a knee jerk reaction. Everybody. I think everybody finally realizes that preseason means nothing. People used to get excited about their team going four and oh in preseason or oh for whatever in preseason and feeling ready to jump off the bridge. But week one. It's like opening day in baseball as well. It's like it's 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 something that just sets the tone for the season, especially to you as a fan. But you can't tell me Aaron Rodgers is only going to put a few points on the board every week. It's going to get better for him. It'll get better for the Giants. It'll you know it just be patient, sit back, don't don't overreact, and let's let this thing play out. Yeah, and uh, one other guy just said uh, he thinks the Bears won't win a game. So again, <laughs> they're they're again. flying in here with the overreaction. It's over. Yeah. So the Bears and the Giants are flying to Hawaii already. They're going to play their own Pro Bowl soon, and they'll hang out and vacation. Only 30 teams in the NFL this year now that they're going to leave and go to Hawaii. Yep, they're done. The season is over. <laughs> but but the Bears, the Bears situation, I think, can get very, it can get very exciting. Justin Field, take over and see him improve early. I, I think it can get exciting. Yes, and one other one here. And how about this? Not a bad weekend for former Alabama quarterbacks. You got two in Miami, obviously beat the Patriots. Now, Mac Jones lost. But he looked pretty good at times. And Jalen Hurts looked pretty good with the Eagles. That is amazing. And I, I you know, when that game, the Miami uh, New England game was kicking off and it was the two Alabama quarterbacks, it's not like these guys were eight years apart either. You know, it's like Tua's jumped in and playing and, and Mac right away. And Tua is just an extreme talent athlete. Uh, his arm strength, his accuracy with the ball. I don't know if the mental part of the game is is 100% yet as far as doing everything, but he's so darn athletic. If he has a chance to see what he's throwing, to, it's there. Um, he He's impressed me with that aspect. I remember I was talking with Ryan Fitzpatrick about Tua last year, and he felt like he still had a lot of learning to do. Um, Tua did. 
maybe maybe this offseason has been real good for him because he looks sharp. He looked good. Mac Jones, I expected to look sharp because I've 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 seen him play a lot more through his college games and, and the things that he does and talk to him personally. And I, I got that feel for him. Jalen Hurts. I was kind of put in that same category as Tua as, as the athlete that was maybe a pure athlete and pure thrower. You know, he's had a couple of years under his belt now and he's ready. The problem in judging Alabama quarterbacks is Alabama is so much more talented than other teams. They, they could just line up and run the ball if they want a lot of times. When they do decide to throw the ball, they've run the ball down your throat. They go play action and they got these first round draft choices at receiver that are running away from people and it's an easy throw. So a lot of times you're not sure if it's just the overall talent of that team is so good or is the quarterback really that good? Well, there's three of them that are really that good. Thanks for bringing the Twitter questions. Keep them coming. Uh, I love uh, talking about the things that you want to hear or want to talk about. And it usually sparks some stories for me and it, it gets me thinking in another direction. So please keep those questions coming. And remember, you can get the Flutie Flakes cast on Apple, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to rate and review. The Flutie Flakes cast is a part of the Sirius XM podcast network. The executive producer is Tom Cress. The associate producers are Chris Tyler and Denny Gallagher. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.